of the chapter. Ecclesiastes 1, beginning at verse 12. The preacher writes, I, the preacher, have been keen over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the heaven, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And if you cast your eye down to verse 12 of chapter 2, and we'll read this passage together. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning at verse 12. The preacher writes, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For, also, for off the wise as off the fool there is no enduring remembrance. Saying that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. And we'll finish our reading of God's word there. Let's take a moment to pray and ask God by his spirit to help us understand his word. Father, we have been praising you in our service, thanking you, Lord, for all that you have done for us, all the gifts that you have given to us. And we want to take a moment to thank you, Lord, that you have spoken in history and that by your spirit you have carried men along to record your words and your deeds in this book, in the Bible. And Lord, we, we confess that it's not just a book, but it is the living word of the living God. And Father, we can't read it like any other book because we need your wisdom. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and open our ears to understand the truth communicated in it. So as we consider today another passage in Ecclesiastes, Father, we depend entirely upon you. And we ask, O God, that you would teach us things that we have never thought about. You would convict us where conviction is needed. And even, Lord, through Ecclesiastes, that you would encourage us 
in this miserable life under the sun. And it's in the name of our Savior we pray these things. Amen. Well, let me begin by bringing you back to science class in high school. Science class in high school. Now, I don't know where you're from. Well, I know some of you. I don't know what your high school experience was, but I'm going to take a guess. Most of us, if not all of us, have been to high school, and we at least sat in one science class in high school. So you walk in the door, and it's your favorite kind of day because the teacher has the Bunsen burners set out. I'll admit I looked in Google to see if there was an American version of that. I think gas burner. I don't know if you know Bunsen burner, but it's that flame that you can burn some stuff with. And your teacher instructs you to get a lab partner and tells you the goal of the class. To test whether different metals produce different colors in the flame. Great, you say to yourself. We're going to burn stuff today. And it's going to be a fun class. There's a flame and there's me and my friend. And the teacher's giving us free reign to burn metals in the name of science. And that's exactly what you did in the class, isn't it? You burnt certain metals and you recorded the results. For example, you noted how copper produced a blue-greenish flame when burnt. And although it was a fun class, although you burnt stuff and you had fun, there was a clear purpose behind it. Whether you realized it or not is a different story, but there was a clear purpose behind it. The teacher wanted you to, to test the theory by collecting data and recording the results. So the theory was that some metals produce different colors in a flame. So therefore, do all metals produce different colors in a flame? And every scientific experiment, no matter how complex, follows this similar pattern. A thesis is stated. Data is then collected. The results are observed. And a conclusion is given. Again, no matter where you go, physics, chemistry, maths, whatever it is, even in, in, in literary research, research all follows the same thing. The thesis is stated, data is collected, the results are observed, and a collusion is given to see whether or not the thesis is accepted or rejected. Are you following along with me? Yeah? Well, the preacher in Ecclesiastes follows a similar fourfold pattern on his search for meaning in life. He has an overall thesis. We considered it uh, briefly last week. He then collects data to show that the results accept his statement. So he has a, a thesis, he has the data, he has the results, and he has the conclusion. We could say then that as we read uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, at some points we are reading the reports of his findings. In the beginning of his report, we have his thesis. We encountered it last week in verse 2 of chapter 1. Just cast your eye in your Bible to chapter 1 and verse 2. The preacher says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If you were here last week, I mentioned how that word vanity literally means a breath or vapor. And the word all refers to life under the sun, life in a fallen world, life after the Garden of Eden, but before the Garden of Eden restored. So like smoke, life after Eden is passing, therefore it's pointless. The preacher declares that this world, this present evil age, provides no lasting satisfaction. 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. I was reading during the week, uh, The Valley of the Vision. It's a book, a collection of the Puritan prayers from the 16th, 17th, 18th century. And I was just struck by how, in one of the prayers, the Puritans mention the vanity of life. And listen to the definition that they give here in their prayer. The prayer says, Oh, may I never fall into the tempers and vanities, the sensuality and folly of this present world. We're in Ecclesiastes and we're like, hey, that's coming from Ecclesiastes. And then whoever it is carries on. It is a place, life under the sun, is a place of inexpressible sorrow, a fast, empty nothingness. Time is a moment, a vapor, and all its enjoyments are empty bubbles, fleeting blasts of wind from which nothing satisfactory can be derived. And that's what it means by the word vanity. That's what it means by all is vanity. Life is an empty bubble. Life is a bit of cheap, uh, uh, a, a bit of, uh, cheap uh, chewing gum. It promises a lot to you. And as soon as you take it, it's nice for just like 30 seconds or a moment at a push. And then it starts to turn sour and it's disgusting, but you don't want to kick it out. You still think it satisfies you. It's nothing. It's an empty bubble. And the preacher repeats his thesis in verse 14 of chapter 1. The verse that we have read, read it with me, verse 14 of chapter 1. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Think about this picture for a moment. A man chasing after the wind. Someone was doing that right now, and we all saw him. We would say, that guy's crazy. He's trying to catch something that can't be caught. And if he did catch it, imagine he did catch it. If he did catch it, the man or the woman would quickly realize that there was no substance to it in the first place. Nothing to hold on to, nothing to grab. It's wind, it's empty. And in the same way, we spend our lives searching for satisfaction only to realize that this world offers empty pleasures to us. It's a pointless pursuit. The phrase could also be translated as shepherding the wind, trying to control the wind only to realize that we can't control this. And you know about this, don't you? You've experienced it. I've experienced it. Because tomorrow you could lose the money you've invested because the company you invested in goes bust. Your plans to travel the world by 35 could change overnight because your parents take sick and need you to care for them. Or instead of reaching the top of the corporate ladder, you could be forced to take early retirement because of an unexpected health condition. We make plans and we try to navigate life our way, 10-year plans, 15-year plans, life plans. Yet life can't be controlled like that. It can't be manipulated. It's like the wind. It's simply a striving after the wind. No matter how hard we try, we can't fit life into our perfect plan. It can't be controlled by us. So the preacher's overall thesis is that all is vanity under the sun. 
And throughout Ecclesiastes, like in science class, the preacher puts his thesis to the test. And today we want to consider his first test, which focuses on wisdom. That was the recurring word in the two passages that we read. Wisdom. That word wisdom doesn't describe godly wisdom, as recorded in the book of Proverbs, but it focuses upon worldly wisdom. He's talking about the best thinking that we as, as, as humans can do without any thought of God. So in a word, we could maybe describe it as concerning education, academic success, fulfillment and searching for life by the books we read, by the knowledge we know, by the degrees we have, by the letters that are after our name. Worldly wisdom. The preacher is asking if, if, if education can provide the ultimate meaning of life. And as we work through this test, I want you, not me, but I want you to decide whether the results of the data confirm the preacher's thesis. Do they confirm that all is vanity under the sun? Now, many factors can negatively affect data collection. It doesn't matter if it's scientific data, historical data, or literary data. There are factors which always limit a piece of research. Factors such as cost, lack of expertise, a personal commitment to the project, and even the, the, the size of the sample, the size of the population included in your research. Well, in these two passages, the preacher tells us that he collected exhaustive data he, 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 he collected thorough data as he considered the lasting significance of education. He thought about the possible limitations to his search and he sought to overcome them. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 12, he describes how, how no one after him can add anything substantial to his conclusions about education because he has considered it from every angle. Just think about this for a moment. The preacher says in, in chapter 1 and verse 12 that I, the preacher, have been keen over Israel in Jerusalem. So as keen, this, this, this man had access to everything and had the power to collect data from anywhere. If he needed a book from somewhere in Israel, his kingdom, he could go get it. If he even wanted to consult material from outside of his kingdom, it would be brought back to him or him to it because he was the keen. Cost didn't limit his search in any way. I mentioned last week how verse 12 supports the idea that King Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Because apart from King David, only King Solomon reigned over Israel from Jerusalem. And this is further supported in verse 16 of chapter 1 where, where the preacher describes how he had great wisdom. Wisdom which surpassed all who were before him. Listen to what 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 30 says about Solomon. It describes how Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Solomon was famous in all the surrounding nations because of his great wisdom. It was, a, it was a wisdom given to him by Almighty God and a wisdom that was trained in life by, by, by constant practice. Therefore, this investigation into the fulfillment of education, it wasn't carried out by an undergraduate. It wasn't carried out by a novice. It wasn't carried out by a beginner. It wasn't limited by a lack of expertise. King Solomon was the most qualified guy for this job, for this search. 
Notice also how the collection of data wasn't limited by, by personal commitment. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 13, Solomon tells us how he applied his heart to seek and to search out. This was an intense search, an exhaustive search, a search which he gave all his time and energy to. What data did he collect? Well, the data, verse 13, came from all that is done under heaven. That phrase, under heaven, is the same as under the sun. It refers to earth now. It refers to the present evil age. The preacher considered everything in this fallen world, every, every, every source of wisdom that our world offers. So he studied men and he studied women. He, 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 he studied how they act on their own and how they interact with one another. He even considered human wisdom, he tells us, by looking at its opposite, by looking at foolish behavior and ideas. And that's what he says in verse 17. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Foolish ideas, madness, which is clearly seen in, in the pursuit of physical pleasure, which Josh is going to consider next week for us. Solomon also considered the wisdom in the natural world. He looked at trees and he observed plants. He spoke about lions and he talked about lizards. He read about crows and heard about dolphins. Don't believe me? Well, listen to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 33. Describes how Solomon spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, this massive tree, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall, a small plant. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. King Solomon left nothing unconsidered. He tried to avoid every possible bias and limitation as he considered if education was the ultimate meaning in life. Now, what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for us as we, as we consider it from a 21st century perspective? Well, I think it means that we can trust the preacher's conclusion about education because it is based on results gathered from exhaustive data and experience. He doesn't just say a statement without backing it up, Rather, he presents the evidence so that we can reach the same conclusions ourselves. So don't outright deny what Solomon says. Rather, consider his results and his conclusions. And likewise, non-Christian in the room, don't immediately reject the truths of Christianity, the truths of the Bible. At least consider them first. It's true that Christianity is a faith-based religion, but it's, it's not true that it involves blind faith. You see, according to the Bible, faith is confident trust in someone or something without seeing them. Faith is based on revealed knowledge by God, knowledge of his words and of his deeds and history, and knowledge about his character. Faith has, 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 has something to grab onto. We can't see it, but we grab onto something. It's not blind faith. That's a lie. That's a myth about Christianity. 
It's faith in the person and in the works of God ultimately displayed in Jesus Christ. And at the heart of the Christianity is, is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as a Christian, I believe that Jesus died and he rose bodily from the dead three days later. And although I can't currently see Jesus alive, I believe that he's alive today because of the evidence revealed to me in the Bible, which the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to consider. Evidence which I believe by faith. So non-Christian, examine the evidence before making your conclusion. You do that in everything else in life. So why, when it comes to Christianity, do you dismiss it and then come up with your reasons afterwards? Rather, consider the reasons first. Examine the evidence and then come to your conclusion. Let's return to Ecclesiastes and look at the results. Look at the evidence of the data that the preacher collected. In our two passages, Solomon provides us with three observations from his data, three results. Let's notice them one by one. Observation number one. Again, as if this is a scientific journal writing for you. Read it. Look at it. He says, observation number one, education can't explain everything. Education, worldly wisdom, can't explain everything. The preacher writes in chapter 1, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. The second half of this proverb tells us that there will always be gaps in our knowledge. No matter how much we study, no matter how many podcasts we listen to, no matter how many seminars we go to, there will always be gaps in our knowledge. We will never understand everything in this world. The first half of this proverb seems to be a statement about the inscrutability of God's ways. And that word inscrutable literally just means mysterious. It tells us that God's ways are mysterious. Why do I say that? Because the same phrase is used in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 13. The preacher tells us, it's on the board behind me, consider the work of God. Who can make straight? What he, God, has made crooked. It's the same language. Like a spy who leaves no trace, God's paths are beyond finding out. No matter how hard we try to explain why God allows certain things to happen, we can't because we aren't God. We can't understand why Why God saves one of our children and not the other, even though they grew up under the exact same teaching from the Bible. Education can't adequately explain why a young wife is is killed by a drunk driver and the killer uh, runs off never to be arrested. Reading on the news this week how our justice system, uh, I, I'm talking about globally, the justice system, there's so many cameras and there's so many evidence, and yet there was a man falsely accused and locked up in prison for 16 years, I think it was, without any consideration. The most wise judges couldn't even show that this guy was innocent. And yet now, he's innocent. Who can explain this? And no amount of worldly wisdom can explain why the innocent Son of God, Jesus Christ, was crucified like a criminal on a Roman cross. 
Solomon realizes in his pursuit after worldly wisdom, after earthly education, that education can't explain everything. It may have theories, but ultimately it can't explain everything. And that's observation number one. Observation number two. Education brings sorrow, not satisfaction. Ultimately, education brings sorrow, not satisfaction. And sometimes people think that, that, that the more they know, the more satisfied they will be. Have you ever heard, and let's take away from the academic side of things, have you ever heard or even said this, please tell me, I really want to know. Why are you saying that? Well, because you want to hear some gossip as well, but also because you think that it's going to make your life better by hearing whatever that gossip is. We think that the more we know, the more satisfied we will be. People can build their entire identity on academic success. Students can think that life is defined by how many letters they have after their name or, or, or by how many papers they publish or how many theories they contribute to a topic. Parents too can be controlled by their child's academic performance in school. My parents don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with wanting your child to do well. It's commendable. But there's something wrong when that drives everything you do with them and say to them. Because you've built your identity on how smart your child is. How they, how, how they score on the end of year exams. What grades they get on the reports. And perhaps this describes you today. Are you looking to education for, for lasting fulfillment? Are you hoping that academic success will, will shape your identity, will provide a, a stable identity for me? Because someone can say, hey, Dr. Alex. Honestly, that's why people do this sometimes. Not everyone, but sometimes it's to get the title, to be respected, to have an identity. Well, Solomon has, has been there. He has tried it, and he's got the t-shirt. Look at his observation in chapter 1, verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Again, Solomon's observation takes the form of a proverb. The first half of the proverb describes the, the frustration of chasing after wisdom. It's frustrating because the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. When a friend of mine got his degree, his bachelor's degree in music, his teacher told him when he handed him the paper, well done, you've got a piece of paper. And I was, I was serious, but we laugh because it's true, isn't it? You work hard for three or four or five or six years, and when you get the degree, you ask, is that it? Is that it? The second half of the proverb is also true. He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. And again, we know this, don't we? Every day we learn something new and our heart aches. We learn more about the events in Iran and we are enraged at the injustice against women. We didn't know about it for such a long time and now we know about it. 
we are hurt, we're enraged. Or we learn more about our family history and we grieve as we discover what our ancestors did. We didn't know about it. The more we learned, the more we were hurt. Or we learn something from the doctor and we're upset because of what will follow. You see, the more we know, the more we realize how broken our world is, the more we are confronted with the ugly reality of life in a fallen world. And ultimately, Solomon says, education, whatever, however you want to define that word education, wisdom, it brings sorrow, not satisfaction, because it opens our eyes to the reality of life in a fallen world. So observation number one, education can't explain everything. Education brings sorrow, not satisfaction. And thirdly, Solomon says in chapter two, education has an earthly advantage, but not an eternal advantage. Education has an earthly advantage, but not an eternal advantage. You see, Solomon didn't just consider wisdom. So that would be bias of him, wouldn't it? Just to consider one half of the argument. But rather, he, 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 he tells us in chapter 1 and chapter 2 how he considered the opposite. He looked at madness and foolish, foolish behavior and mad ideas. And by doing this, he observed a minor advantage in wisdom. Look at chapter 2 and verses 13 to 14 with me. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So Solomon doesn't say that, that wisdom is entirely wrong or that education is completely useless. So don't go out there and, and take your kids from school. You'll probably get arrested in Germany for doing that. But don't do it and homeschool them because that's not what Solomon's saying. Not at all. He recognizes that it is better to be wise, to be educated, than to be a fool because a wise person realizes the brokenness of this world and lives in light of the certainty of death. A fool, on the other hand, well, he denies death and only lives for that moment. Like that rich fool that Jesus talks about in Luke's Gospel who said um, I, I, he, his, his, his life was to eat and drink and to be merry. That was it. He lived for the present. He lived for now. Never considered the brokenness around him, the, the consequences of his actions, or the certainty of death. So Solomon says, there's, there's an advantage to education. But it's only an earthly advantage. Because death, the great leveler, cancels it out. Solomon writes in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2, Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, saying that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. There's a historical account of Alexander the Great, who once saw his friend Diogenes 
Uh, he was a Greek philosopher in a field with a pile of bones. Alexander didn't understand what he was doing, so he asked Diogenes, what are you looking for in this field? And Diogenes replied, I am searching for the bones of your father Philip, but I cannot distinguish them from those of his slaves. And you see, when it comes to eternity, when it comes to death, all earthly advantages will be cancelled out. In the end, nothing we have or do in this life gives us an advantage over anyone else. We all live and we all die and we will all be forgotten. The righteous dies and so does the wicked. The good dies and so does the evil. The rich dies and so does the poor. The the free dies and so does the slave. The wise dies and so does the fool. The results are in. One out of one dies. So Solomon observes that education, yes, it has an earthly advantage, but not an eternal advantage. And after hearing his three results, his three observations, what's your conclusion? Do the results confirm or do they reject his thesis that all is vanity under the sun? I asked you earlier to decide. So what have you decided? What have you decided in your heart? What do you think? Well, listen to Solomon's conclusion about searching for meaning in education. He writes in the middle of Ecclesiastes 1.13, It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Life in a fallen world, Solomon says, is a burdensome task, a grievous endeavor. Every day under the sun is a bad day because things are not what they were meant to be. He then writes in in chapter 2, verse 17, the conclusion of both of our passages today. So I hate it, life. Can you see the preacher's raw emotion? He's a bit like Job, isn't he? That righteous man, Job 3, who says, I curse the day of my birth. He wishes he wasn't born. He's on a journey. And he's recording us his final, um, his, his, his emotions in the midst of the journey. It's not his final destination, but it's the midst of his emotions. They're real emotions. They're hard emotions. And for some of us, we don't want these emotions in the Bible. But it's in the Bible. And he says, so I hate it, life. I hate it life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all this vanity and a striving after a wind. He hates life because education doesn't provide what it says it will provide. It has no substance. Pursuing wisdom is like chasing after the wind. He is fed up with the heartache and the empty pleasures that this world offers. That is his conclusion. The results support his 
his, 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 his thesis, his statement that truly life under the sun is vanity and a striving after wind. It's passing. Therefore, it's pointless. And again, we, 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 we want to dismiss this because we want happiness. We want, we, we want someone to, to tickle our ears as, as the Apostle Paul says. But we're preaching the, the, the inspired word of God. And as I said last week, it's like, it's like Ecclesiastes snaps us out of a dream. It brings us back to reality. It, it, it hits us off the earth. And we bounce up and we hit it again to realize that this is what life is like in a fallen world. What then are we to make of the preacher's conclusion about the vanity of education? Well, I think it's that we are to accept it as reality. To agree with him that that education cannot fully satisfy us. As Josh will look at next week, that that pleasure cannot fully satisfy us. As Tim looks at the... Uh, two weeks from now, that work and money will not satisfy us. We are to be honest about the brokenness of our world and to live in the light of the certainty of death. We are to acknowledge the truth presented in the Bible that we are sinners who live in a fallen world, a world where things are not what they were created to be, a world that is under God's curse because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Even as Christians, we're not immune from this. We are to wake up, snap back to reality, wake up and see the fact that life in a, wor- in a fallen world is hard and some things can't be explained. As Christians, we aren't immune from the effects of the fall. That's why Jesus says in John 16, see, you will have many troubles. They've told you before they come. And it's only when we realize this that things begin to make sense. Because it's only when we realize that there is life after life under the sun that things make sense. You see, God, our creator, has promised to one day make all things new. He has promised to to remove his curse completely and to get rid of his sin forever. And his promise is certain because his son Jesus died on the cross for the sins of his people and three days later rose triumphantly from the grave. And by his resurrection, Jesus declared that death is defeated. He faced death, the certainty of death, head on. And he said, you're not going to level me. Rather, I'm going to rise triumphant from the grave. So that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It's a promise that those who believe in Christ as their Savior and Lord will have eternal life. A life free from sin and pain. A life where all things will be made new. And a life in the presence of our Creator forever. The ultimate question then is not whether the preacher's thesis is right, because it is. But the ultimate question is whether you have accepted Jesus as your only Savior and your only Lord. God's word is clear to us. To be with Jesus in the next life, you must belong to Jesus 
in this life. So, as we close, let me ask you directly. I'm not asking the person beside you. I'm asking you directly. Have you acknowledged your sin to Almighty God? And have you accepted Jesus as your only Savior? If not, well, today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day where you can trust in him the resurrection and life. And though you die, yet shall you live. So look to Jesus and live. And for those in the room who are followers of Christ, brothers and sisters in the Lord, Let this be an encouragement to us not to live for this world, not to live for academic success, but to live for the world to come. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Truly, there is nothing better for a person than to live under the sun with your eyes firmly fixed upon your Savior. And it's He, He alone that satisfies and provides the ultimate meaning in our life. So does education satisfy our every longing? No. But Jesus does. And that's why we exist in the city. To invite as many people as possible to know, love, and follow Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. And then we're going to worship God in a final song. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. We want to thank you, Father, for helping us to understand it and to comprehend the truths. Lord, we do acknowledge that we 